right, well, I am super excited to be here. Uh, like I told the, the Thursday class, I was surprised when I got an email uh, asking if I would teach Wellspring and just super ecstatic that I get to do this and couldn't really tell what the, the lesson was from uh, the title, you know, honoring, honoring the Lord in our Bible reading. Uh, but then when I listened to what Scott had taught in the past, it was a, a lesson on hermeneutics. And I thought, oh. <laughs> then I was really excited uh, to teach, um, just finding out what I was teaching about, because I had been, over the past, uh, I don't know, year, year and a half, two years, uh, thinking a lot about hermeneutics. And so to, to be able to teach it to the ladies in Wall Springs is Really exciting. Uh, go ahead and open to Proverbs chapter 2. That's what we'll be primarily. As you know and have reviewed and heard plenty of times uh, in Wellspring, uh, shepherding your heart, shepherding your home and in the ministries in this church uh, and in other ministries that you may have uh, in your life. Uh, shepherding is, is a discipline. Uh, we, we talk about that, shepherding your heart. It's a discipline. It's not just something that happens accidentally, uh, but it's something that we have to actually strive for. We can do better or worse at times. Uh, and, and it really comes out of uh, what we're convinced of, what we believe about ourselves, about God, about the scriptures, uh, what we believe to be true. Those things determine uh, how well we shepherd our hearts. What we're going to see today from Proverbs 2 is really eight principles for shepherding our hearts uh, to honor the Lord in our Bible reading. So these are, are things that you must be convinced of. Uh, these will come from what convictions you hold in your own heart about the scriptures that will actually determine if you shepherd your heart in these eight ways. Um, and the the technical name, as I've already mentioned, is, is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, which just means the the interpretation of language. Hermeneutics is the study of the interpretation of language. So how do we know what words mean when someone communicates? What do we do with their words? How should we take them? How should we understand them? And <clears throat> really, there, there aren't ways to make up rules when it comes to hermeneutics. Uh, if you think about the first person to ever speak ever, that's God, right? Uh, when he spoke at creation. And so the rules of communication are already made up for us. And so hermeneutics is really a, a study in discovering what those are, not deciding what they should be or anything like that. And so it's, it's not different when we come to the scriptures. God has already determined how we should take his words. And so we have uh, principles that we derive from the scriptures which is important. We don't come up with them out, outside of or without the scriptures, but 
the rules for how we should understand God's words are actually in God's words. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So lots of different passages where we uh, could derive these principles. Um, Proverbs 2 is just a, a favorite chapter of mine and so important uh, because if you look at, at Proverbs 2, uh, verse 6, Solomon uh, says, For the Lord, Yahweh, gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So as he details what he does in Proverbs 2, it really is essentially about the word, the word of God. The wisdom that God gives from specifically, as you see in the second line of Proverbs 2.6, from his mouth. This is what is coming from God's mouth. The knowledge, understanding, wisdom that God gives us through the very words that he has spoken. And so that's why this is a, just a great place to talk about hermeneutics because Solomon is teaching his young son who will one day be king. Here is what you as an Israelite who's been given the decrees of God need to do with God's words, with the wisdom that comes from what God has spoken. So it's just an ideal place and uh, one that I love. So that's what will be primarily and we'll kind of branch out from Proverbs 2 and look at, at these same principles in other places in Scripture. So eight principles from Proverbs chapter 2 for shepherding your heart to honor the Lord in your Bible reading. Uh, the first principle, and, and you know what, let's just read through the, the chapter and then we'll look at these eight things. So starting at verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. Then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. For Yahweh gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. If you do this, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the, of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Eight principles that we just read from Proverbs 2 for shepherding your heart to honor the Lord in your Bible reading. If I had to summarize 
these eight principles, what these eight principles demonstrate, it would be that holiness is essential to hermeneutics. Holiness is essential to hermeneutics. Or to say it another way, as goes your heart, so goes your hermeneutics. And you'll see that in these eight principles, they all have an emphasis on holiness when we approach God's word. Increasing holiness will aid you in interpreting God's word. Increasing holiness will aid you in interpreting God's word. And con- you know, the, the other side of that is a failure to grow in holiness will affect what you do with God's word, how you handle it. Not just whether you come to God's word or not, right? That's easy. If you're not reading your Bible, sin is afoot. <laughs> if you are reading your Bible, you're probably being sanctified. Um, but not whether, not only whether or not you read your Bible is a matter of holiness, but actually what you do when you read your Bible is a matter of holiness. So these eight principles, starting uh, with the first one, the first thing we see in verse one is to humbly receive God's words as given. Humbly receive God's words as given. That is one way we must shepherd our hearts every single time we open God's word, every single time we hear God's words being uh, taught or preached or read, we must humbly receive them simply as they were given. And we'll spend a, a, a chunk of time here this seems like it would be a simple principle, and it actually is, but it's, it's really important. Look at verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Receive my words, treasure up my commandments with you. What he's telling his son to do is just take my words as they're given. Receive my words as given. And that's a sign of humility to not impose or require God to speak in a certain way but just to let him speak and we just are willing to submit to whatever he says that is humble right one one uh, way that we could not do this right with with what our church believes, or what we believe about the scriptures. Uh, we aim to have a high esteem of the scriptures. And so there's lots of different ways that you could not do this, not humbly just receive God's words as given. Uh, one way that we would probably falter at this point, uh, I'll give you a, a couple. First, we could decide what the meaning of God's word ought to be before we even read the text. That wouldn't be humble. If we decided, God, here is what you must tell me this morning when I read my Bible. Right? Before we open God's word, we have, we could have it fixed in our minds. God, here's what you need to say. And it could be something as noble, as noble a desire as, 
I, I would love to see the gospel in scripture this morning, right? When you wake up, read your Bible, you could have a desire like, I want to see the gospel. Is that a good desire? Absolutely. To see Christ and him crucified, resurrected, that would be a, a good desire to want to see that. But what if you're reading Genesis chapter 23? Anybody know what Genesis 23 is about? What's in, what's in Genesis 23? Uh, Genesis 23 is the burial of Sarah, Abraham's wife, which I think is possibly one of the most important passages in Genesis uh, for, for a number of reasons. But that's not specifically about Christ and him crucified, right? So just imagine if with a good desire like wanting to see the gospel, when you come to Genesis 23 in your Bible reading plan, if you're telling God, if you're requiring God, right, standing as Lord over him, saying this is how you must speak to me this morning, you're going to be pretty disappointed when you read Genesis 23, and instead of letting God speak and humbly receiving his words as he's given them, you've maybe inadvertently required him to say something other than what he has said. And you'll miss all of the richness that God has for you in a chapter like Genesis 23. That the faith of Abraham is being put on display and the faith of Sarah, even in her burial, is being put on display as he buys this field, the only land that Abraham owned in the entire the entire scriptures that's the only thing he actually purchased everywhere else he was moving around walking about Canaan and that was the only thing he owned it was the only thing Isaac owned it was the only thing Jacob owned and if you keep reading carefully you see that they turn it into a cemetery for really significant reasons that we don't have time to go into uh, <laughs> But that's why you, you're on a Bible reading plan. You can read it yourself eventually. Um, so humbly receive God's word as given. Uh, let me just throw this out. I'll ask a question. Um, what do you think the long-term effects of requiring God to speak in a certain way like that, right? Even a good way about the gospel. What do you think the long-term effects might be if you impose or require something like that of God instead of just humbly receiving his words as given. Okay, yeah, you'll end up reading into it what it doesn't say. Good. Missing what it does say. Miss what it does say, that's right. Our hearts aren't changed in accordance with his word. That's right. <clears throat> that's right, your hearts aren't changed in accordance with his word. Anything else? That's a... False teaching. False doctrine. Yeah, you could start wandering into false doctrine. Uh, we'll, we'll see that as well uh, later. Um, you know, Diana, when you mentioned you could fail to be changed in accordance with God's word. Uh, that actually is the long-term detriment because once you determine what God must say, 
even if it's something good like the gospel, uh, there are other truths that God intends to communicate to us that are intended for the reasons mentioned in 2 Timothy 3. You know, uh, the scripture is good for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Uh, the gospel is one small por- part of that, um, but God has communicated more, right? Besides just Christ and him crucified, as, as, uh, even though that's the pinnacle of his revelation. And so you actually, if you tell God the way he must speak, then you actually end up changing only in the same ways, right? And in other areas of your life get unaddressed by the truth that God is communicating. Um, and that's sort of the other side of, of, of this problem, right? When we aren't shepherding our hearts to humbly receive God's word. The other, the other pitfall besides telling what God what he must mean, what he must say, is how his words must affect us when we read our Bible. So the other side of that is we decide what the outcome of God's reading, or, or we decide what the outcome of reading God's word ought to be, right? Not just what God must mean or what must say, but what effect it ought to have on us. If we decide beforehand, this is the effect God's word must have on me today. And we're not open or interested in having uh, God affect us any other way other than what we've already fixed in our minds. That's not humble either. i tell you a good way that this could happen. Do, is, it, is it good to be encouraged when we read the scriptures? Absolutely. That is an effect of... God's word, to be encouraged, to have courage instilled in us, to uh, rejoice, Psalm 19 says, that his words rejoice the heart. Absolutely. Is that the only thing God's word is intended to do? No, it's not. It's intended to do more. So we could have such, you know, a good desire like, God, I want to see the gospel. I want to be encouraged. Um. But what if, and, and I don't know many people, I don't know if you've ever prayed this, right? Uh, God, this morning, I just want to be crushed by your word <laughs> and brought to great sorrow and repentance and lamentation, you know? <laughs> That's usually not our prayer. <laughs> um, wouldn't be a bad one. But, but if, you're only, if you are intending only to be encouraged, God, this is the way, when I read your word this morning, this is the way you must affect me. You must encourage me. There's a lot of passages. What do you do when you read Jeremiah? I mean, he is just rebuking the nation over and over and over. Uh, And sometimes it's difficult to get through Jeremiah, uh, depending on your reading plan. But some of those passages aren't intended to be an encouragement and a comfort. Um. We've been reading through the Minor Prophets in, in service and publicly. A lot of those passages, because of where the Minor Prophets fall, many of them, in, in history, the nation needs to be rebuked. And sometimes we need to be rebuked. And so don't decide beforehand what God's word must mean. And don't decide how it must affect you beforehand. Um, those can just be uh, pitfalls that we fall into 
but those are really the result of not humbly receiving God's words as given. Um, the Again, the long-term effects of, of doing that, you can become disenchanted with certain passages uh, because that just doesn't encourage me. And God's like, well, it's not intended as, a, as an encouragement necessarily. Um, you can become disenchanted with entire books of the Bible because it just doesn't affect me like I think I should be affected. Uh, or even whole doctrines. You know, the wrath of God is a hard doctrine. Uh, and so, or you can, you know, if you don't like being told what to do, right? You don't like commands. You think, man, I, I just want to know who I am in Christ. Well, you should, and you will, if you just keep reading your Bible. You see a lot about who we are in Christ. But there's more, and if you just want to focus exclusively on that, well, there are a lot of commands too, and those will cause you to stumble if you don't want to hear the commands of Scripture, the commands of God. So whole doctrines can become uh, distasteful, and uh, eventually you can even begin, uh, begin, and, and like we said, your, your hermeneutics follows your heart, right? You can actually begin to reject sound doctrine in exchange for teachings that just suit the way you want to feel, right? I only want the encouragement stuff, and so you've got your encouragement filter on top of God's word, and the only thing that makes it through is the encouraging stuff. So, does that make sense? Any questions about that? By the way, this was a, you know, hum, we talk about humbly receiving God's words as given. You think about the first temptation, wasn't it that? Has God really said, just to challenge a little bit, question a little bit, has God really, is that really what he meant? And now, you you know, Satan is tempting Eve to not do this. Well, God's, God spoke really clearly. And if you've read Genesis 2, you, you get it. He spoke really clearly, so clearly that when he said, let there be light, something else didn't come into existence, but light did, right? That's clear communication. And when he told Adam what to do, it was clear communication. And Satan called into question, got Eve to not humbly receive God's word as given and to make it something else. Uh, so number two. Besides humbly receiving God's words as given, what we also derive from Proverbs 2 is that we should consistently assume that the human author and the divine author's intentions are one and the same. They're one and the same. When the human author speaks in Scripture, it is synonymous. Whatever he's intending to communicate when he writes is synonymous with what God intends to communicate when he speaks through that human author. Uh, How do we see this in Proverbs 2? Verse 1, my son, that's Solomon speaking, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. There's clearly a father speaking to his son. Uh, He's parenting his son. He says, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments, that's Solomon's, 
making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver, search for it as for hidden treasures. There's a result given in verse 5. The result of doing this with Solomon's words would be what? You will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. He's telling his son to diligently, with all of his might, pursue wisdom that's coming from dad. And you'll actually arrive, if you do that, if you receive my words, at wisdom, the fear of Yahweh, the knowledge of God. But a a reason is given in verse 6. Why can Solomon's son receive Solomon's words, Solomon's commandments, and arrive at wisdom? Verse 6 says, because God gives wisdom from his mouth. And knowledge, and from his mouth, or Yahweh gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The reason Solomon's son could arrive at the result of wisdom by receiving Solomon's words is because they were God's words. You see that? There's not a difference. Solomon's son could say, Dad, well, who am I listening to? Am I listening to you or am I listening to God? And Solomon would say, yeah, exactly. You listen to us. And that's really convenient. You can say, thus saith the Lord, clean your room. (laughs) Solomon is speaking God's words. We don't have the same liberty unless we are quoting from Scripture. Then we can say, thus saith the Lord, right? Obey your parents, you know. Ephesians 6 1 children obey your parents and the Lord so there's no difference when Solomon's son is listening he's not he's unable to distinguish between Solomon's words and God's words because they are the same words if you were going to distinguish between the the writers of scripture's words and God's words you would actually have to have two different texts one that came from the human author only and one that came from God. And we just don't have that. It, then it would cease to be scripture on one hand, right? If the, author, if the human author was speaking apart from God, not God's words, we wouldn't have that. Which is interesting. We actually have uh, those instances are recorded, right? People who have spoken for God have written other things that we don't have in scripture because they're not scripture, so everything in scripture is both God's words and the human authors. I'll give you a, an example. It is go to Haggai, Haggai chapter seven, or sorry, it doesn't have seven chapters. Chapter one, verse seven. You're uh, three books from the end of your Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So you can find Matthew and flip backwards three books. God's people didn't obey, and all of the, the curses that they were told would come about in, De- in Deuteronomy uh, 28 a- actually ended up happening. They were scattered out of the land, they, were, they went into exile with their king. Seventy years uh, after Judah was exiled, what we read about in Jeremiah 29:11 happened. They came back into the land, that was the the plan that God had for them. Once they're reestablished, uh, 
into the land. There's there's exiles who have come back into the land. And so Haggai is speaking to them because they're still not obeying yet, even though God has begun to bring them back into the land. And so here's what Haggai says to them. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple. This is in verse seven. That I in chapter one, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. So that's the, the command to rebuild the temple. Verse nine, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares Yahweh of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky is withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on the labor of your hands. God is reminding them, those curses y'all are still experiencing, right? The land won't yield for you. That's because you haven't been obedient. Go build my house. And he's saying this through Haggai. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of Yahweh, their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahweh the God had sent him. So who are the people obeying? Yahweh or Haggai? Both. And yet Haggai didn't speak twice. One set of words, both the prophet and God himself are being obeyed because there's no difference. Uh, there's a, a movement currently in evangelicalism, depending how broadly you read in the, the world of blogging, uh, how broadly you listen in the podcasting world. Uh, this has become really popular as people are trying to handle, primarily it's an issue of, you know, what are the New Testament authors doing with the Old Testament? They quote and use the Old Testament in ways that seem foreign to us at times. And so in them trying to sort this out, they've really introduced a foreign way of interpreting the scriptures uh, into Christendom. And it's, it's popular right now. Um, people are saying, well... When I read that quotation of, for example, Isaiah in the, in the New Testament, when Matthew, when Jesus quote from Isaiah, they're clearly pointing in the New Testament, they're saying that that passage is about Christ. But when I go back to Isaiah, I don't, that seems like it's talking about something completely different. And so the way, instead of, concluding as we should when, when that's the case, I lack understanding. What people have done is they've said, well, Isaiah must have been meaning one thing, but it's also written by God, so here's my out. Here's my way to explain that away is there's also a divine intention in the same text. And, and Isaiah doesn't have to mean, because he's just a man, he doesn't know as much as God. He's not omniscient. And so God must mean something else in that. And so, I mean, it's really convenient. You don't have to do the hard work of understanding what the New Testament author is actually doing with the Old Testament. You just say, well, he's understanding what God meant. And the human author 
is understanding something different. And so you're okay reading your Old Testament as if there's two different layers of interpretation. That raises all kinds of problems. For, for starters, do the New Testament authors have the right to do that with God's word in the Old Testament? No. They don't have the right to, to change, augment, add to God's words as they were given in the Old Testament. Uh, even God, you want to be frank, doesn't have the right to change his own words that he already spoke. Right? When he says, when he makes a promise on, on the basis of his own character, his own constancy, he can't change his own words. Right? He certainly can give a set of laws to a, to a certain group of people and say, now that it's a different period of history, I'm, gonna, I'm requiring something else of you. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. And he did, right? We're not under Mosaic law. But he certainly can't make a literal promise to Abraham to give him a son or have kings come from his line or to give him land and just say, you know what? I know I promised that and I said I would surely do it, but I'm changing my mind. I'm not going to do it anymore. I know I promised to restore Israel and that there would be a national repentance of every single Israelite. You know, we read about that in Zechariah 12. This is what I'll do to Jerusalem and the house of David in those days. Every single family will repent and mourn over him whom they have pierced. Right? I know I said I was going to do that, but y'all are just disobedient. I'm, I'm, changing, I'm changing my mind now. God's own faithfulness is on the line. And so this principle is, is uh, helpful because, for starters, it maintains God's faithfulness as given. Uh, it's also helpful because whose intention do we read in Scripture when we just read the plain words of Scripture? We're reading human words, right? And we know how to interpret human words. We use grammar. We speak in verbs and nouns and prepositional phrases, right? We can, we can actually discern what someone means by what they say in the Scriptures by looking at really human constructions, right? Like grammar and syntax. And, you know, maybe some of us are more adept at that than others, but we can all at least grow and have it explained on some level. So that's really helpful. If God means something other than the clear grammar that was there, how do we figure that out? And that's why you get spiritualizing, allegorizing of texts. Yeah, God, it sounds like that's what God's saying, but let me tell you what he really means, you know, and then they get spiritualized to something you can't really discern. Uh, they're all kind of wrong, bad things that happen to the Bible and to our understanding when that when we separate the divine and human author's intention. Any questions about that? Yeah. Um, the first principle 
uh, I would say if you're trying to discern how the New Testament author is using the Old Testament, uh, the first principle would be to understand the Old Testament passage on its own. Uh, assume that the Old Testament has its own meaning before the New Testament, which it, it obviously did for many years. So go back to the Old Testament passage and seek to understand it um, on its own right, apart from the New Testament. Uh, and then you do the same thing with the New Testament passage. You seek to understand it on its own. And it's, it, it has its own context for how that Old Testament passage is being quoted or used. Um, one, one example, and this might get, make the, the answer a little bit longer. Uh, don't want to go there. All right. I won't go there. Uh, if, you, if you assume that both are, were spoken clearly, that doesn't mean we understand them as clearly as we would like, but they were both spoken clearly, then you can spend equal time right, working in both passages before you decide Here's what the New Testament is saying about the old. I think that's probably the most basic principle uh, to understand. Um, have, you, have you guys ever heard the, the saying, Scripture interpret Scripture? Uh, if you don't know what a passage means, let the clearer passages interpret the unclear passage. Here's the problem with that. No, well, here's what's right with Scripture interprets scripture. That's called uh, the analogy of faith is the technical term for it. What's right about that is we understand God doesn't contradict himself. God can't lie, scripture says. Because God can't lie, we assume, uh, there's a, it's a good assumption that all of scripture is harmonious. They, they go together, they don't contradict. And so... If you're coming with one interpretation, yet that interpretation actually contradicts another passage, then let scripture interpret scripture and come to the conclusion that you got one of them wrong, right? Or both of them, right? But you should not be coming to conclusions about passages contradicting each other. That's what's right about that principle. What's wrong about that principle is Whatever passage is unclear, go to the clearer passage and let it interpret the unclear passage. What's wrong about that is you're basically saying, I don't know what that means, but this means what that means. Does that make sense? If, if you have two passages and you're, you're confident in your interpretation in one, but not in another, you don't really know what that means. If you don't know what it means, you can't say the other passage means the same thing. And so you can't let the clearer passage interpret the unclear, right? You actually have to come to a conclusion on both of them. And sometimes, especially because we're so much further removed from the Old Testament, that just takes a lot of work. It just takes a lot of work to understand what exactly is going on in the Old Testament. And so... Uh, yeah, and that 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 actually may put a greater burden on you to to read more, understand more uh, about what's going on in the Old Testament. Uh, the rewards are phenomenal, though. 
when you when you come to some of those conclusions. It takes it takes hard work, um, which we'll actually talk about in principle five. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Is it helpful also to identify the genre? So if we know we're looking at prophecy, to not expect that they may not have completely understood how that was going to be fulfilled. But on this side of the cross, we do have some better um, principles to yeah. understand that. Uh, so genre does play an important role. Uh, you wouldn't read a narrative like Genesis and the rest of the Torah like you're reading uh, Daniel, perhaps, even though there are prophetic elements in, in the Torah. Uh, if, if there's a clear statement about the future, uh, you would just, I mean, you take that in context, right? You, you take it as a, a clear statement about the future rather than a story, necessarily. Um, there's details being given about something that will happen, not something that is currently going on. Uh, with that, you don't want to also fall into the pit, pitfall of assuming that the, the human author is speaking, but he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? He may not have all the details. For example, Moses, uh, you know, Jesus in John 5 says, Moses wrote about me. And it is clear when you read in Genesis, Genesis 3, Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord, when he's being spoken about, right? Moses wrote of me. Yeah, he actually wrote about a divine messenger who spoke for God as God, right, came, was, was visible multiple times, Abraham, God appeared to Abraham, God appeared to Isaac, God appeared to Jacob, uh, visibly, um, I think that God appeared to Moses in the flesh when he passes by in Exodus 34, so Moses wrote of Christ, uh, but Moses only wrote about what Moses wrote about. When Moses writes about the promises that are given to the, the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, and he tells them what their future holds, right, in the, in the last days, he gives some, some astounding details. Uh, and when he speaks to Judah specifically, he says, a ruler shall come from you. So here's this, in this narrative, we get a, a statement about the future. That's, I mean, it's a certain genre. It's narrative. It's just a story of, of what was said. But in that, Israel tells Judah, you'll have a ruler come from you. So did Moses know a ruler would come from the line of Judah? Yeah. Did he know that it would be specifically through the seed of David? No, why not? David wasn't... The, the revelation hadn't progressed that far. So if you take each passage, each writer with his own words, Moses didn't know more than Moses wrote because he's first, but David knew more than Moses and he knew what Moses knew. And so David knows more, right? Uh, so as you're considering what genre it is, as you're considering uh, the interpretation of those specific passages, always assume the human author only knows what's been revealed, right, to him 
and those details, and, and, and it doesn't have to be more. So when it talks about in First Peter 1, the prophets were searching and inquiring what person or time, uh, that's not that there were a bunch of convoluted, ambiguous statements in the Old Testament. They had no idea what to do with. No, they actually knew what they were doing with the Old Testament, but that's all they knew. They didn't know the specific, they didn't know Mary was going to have the baby. Who, who is it, right? Who's the virgin that Isaiah talked about? Where is she? They didn't know it was Mary. And so it's clear what they know, but not more than, than what they know. And now that we have uh, fuller revelation, we see more than they saw. All right, let's keep moving. Uh, number three, attentively focus on the details of the text. It honors the Lord in your Bible reading, in your Bible study, to attentively focus on the details of the text. Uh, this is in, in verse 2 of, of Proverbs. The way that Solomon instructs his son to listen to his words, to treasure up his commandments, is by making his ear attentive to wisdom and inclining his heart to understanding. If Solomon's son, as the, the soon-to-be king, was interacting with God's word, he would not only hear it from his father Solomon, uh, Per Deuteronomy 17, he would have had to write his own copy of the law, handwrite it as the future king of Israel. And so he would have had his own copy of God's word in the way that he was supposed to give heed to the wisdom that God had communicated to him as the king would be to have his ear attentive. Attentive uh, is the key word there. Um, and so that required him to actually focus on the details of the text every every word is inspired by god not the men but the words are inspired by god and that includes in the minutiae of the of the text i'll give you one example uh of where this might be easy to skip go to zechariah where we've been reading for some time now in our public reading so one book after Haggai. And go to chapter 2. We'll start in verse 6. Or verse 5 even. For I, verse 5, chapter 2 of Zechariah, For I, declares Yahweh, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. The, this is from the Naz. Behold there, flee from the land of the north, declares Yahweh, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares Yahweh. Ho, Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. He's calling his exiles back. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, and just notice the pronouns, right, the references to a person that are used in what we're about to read. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, who's speaking? Yahweh of hosts. After glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. 
Who's being sent? Who's the me? It's an astute observation. Yahweh of hosts. The speaker is referring to himself, right? But he says that he's been sent. Who's sending Yahweh of hosts? Only could be one person. God. Yahweh is sending a person who is Yahweh of hosts. God is sending Yahweh of hosts. He's being sent. That is a clear indication that God is, there's a plurality to God. Uh, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye, uh, a reference to Jerusalem. God is the one who established Jerusalem, made that city significant in the plan of redemption. And so here is Yahweh of hosts saying Jerusalem is really important to God. And also Yahweh has sent me. Uh, It happens multiple times in Zechariah. Really fascinating. Uh, Who has sent me is sort of this refrain in Zechariah. If you flip over to chapter 6, like this same sent one comes up again. Uh, and, and you have all of those references. We won't, we won't look at all of those, but on your sheet you can look at those later. But in chapter 6, if you look at verse 15... Those who are far off will come and build the temple of Yahweh. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. And it will take place if you completely obey Yahweh your God. Who's speaking in verse 15? You have to go back to verse 9 to figure that out. Look at verse 9. The word of Yahweh also came to me saying. And then he quotes all the way through verse 15. So who's speaking when he says, then you will know that Yahweh has sent me in verse 15. Who's speaking according to verse 9? Look closely. Look closely, closerly. (laughs) And the word of the Lord. Yes, thank you. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, he's not thinking about anything but what the Old Testament has actually said about the word of the Lord. And this isn't the first time that this has happened in Scripture. The word of the Lord, there are passages where it's referred to, and it clearly just means the words that are being spoken. But at other times, it does mean, it's clear that it means a person. And this is one of those instances. The word of the Lord comes to Zechariah saying, and he makes this astounding prophecy about this uh, future man called Branch who will be a king and a priest in the temple. He'll put his throne in the temple. That's never been the case. There's never been a throne for a king to sit on or any chairs in the temple, in the tabernacle throughout Israel. Israel's whole history. But he talks about a time when that will be the case. And there'll be a priest king on the throne in Jerusalem. 
So we're all of that to say, giving attention to the details is it is really important, uh, and it's it's a it's a sign of humility when we take every single word, every part of God's word as from the Lord as significant. Does that make sense? So, um, if I'm understanding you correctly, then Zechariah understood when he wrote this that in this case, the word of the Lord is like a personification of this king, um, the one who has been sent or will have been sent. Yep, I think so. And <clears throat> that that uh, then you will know Yahweh has sent me is uh, happens in chapter two, chapter four, chapter six, and so you put those together. It's 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 God each time being sent by God. Um, some of the translations like the the ESV aren't as helpful. If you're looking at the ESV, then I think there's a colon or something, right? Does, then the word of the Lord came to me colon. And there's a quote. Is that is that the way it's set up? Yeah, that's less helpful uh, as an indication that the word of the Lord is a person. Um, even the NASB, uh, the the quotes stop short of of what's actually said. Um, in Hebrew, it's a little clearer because there are no quotes, right? That's the the human English uh, instrument there to to indica- indicate that something's being said, but. You, know, you read the read the text enough times and 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 ask you know what's going on and and it's clear it's a it's a person the word of the Lord uh, and there are other times in Ezekiel you know the the still small voice that comes to Ezekiel it's a person uh, if, if you read that text carefully as well so that's what I'm saying uh, number four not only humbly. Receive God's words as given. Not only consistently assume that the human author and the divine author's intentions are one and the same. Not only attentively focus on the details of the text in a Bible reading. But number four, another way to honor the Lord is to prayerfully plead with him for understanding. To prayerfully plead with him for understanding. And we see Solomon instructing his son to do this in verses 3 and 4. If you call out for insight, verse 3 in Proverbs 2, and raise your voice... Uh, for understanding. So verse 3, he's saying you need to call out for this. You need to ask for this. And again, ultimately, even though Solomon is seeking to impart wisdom to his son, here again from verse 6, who's the one who gives true wisdom? Who's the one that makes it receivable, makes it available? It's the Lord himself. We have no right inherently to God's wisdom, to lay hold of that. But the reason that we can actually lay hold of God's wisdom, and when we seek for it, the reason we can seek for it and arrive at wisdom, the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of God, is because God is gracious. God is gracious, and he actually desires to give of his wisdom. All 66 books of it. So, as humble recipients and readers of God's word, we should call out for it. We should ask the Lord prayerfully whenever we open our Bibles, whenever we're hearing God's word, God, make me believe what you have clearly revealed in your word. Make me receptive. Give me, please, your wisdom. 
I know you are gracious, you are merciful to sinners like me, so give me your wisdom. And oftentimes, receiving God's wisdom, even though there are, as we've said, constructs, grammar, syntax, genre, things to understand uh, that will aid in our understanding, more often than not, I think it's an issue of belief. Are we just ready to believe what God has clearly communicated? What was wrong with the disciples? You know, how clearly can you say, hey, guys, I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to rise again? I mean, you can't get more clearly, clear. you know, you can't get more clear than that. And the disciples just, okay, you know. And they just don't get it, right? And then we read in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, they're just depressed. And it's been three days since, you know. Well, didn't he tell you? Three days, guys. You can count, right? And what was? But but Jesus diagnoses their issue on the road to Emmaus. It's not, you know, the Old Testament was just this convoluted jumble of prophecies that weren't really clear and uh, you know ambiguous and undiscernible. It was so dark. We just we need a new way to read our Bibles. Jesus rebukes them. He doesn't justify their sorrow. He says, you foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. It was a matter of just believing what was written. Wasn't it necessary that Christ suffer and then rise again? I mean, that that was necessary from the Old Testament, right? And so they should have understood. Their understanding was inhibited by their unbelief was the issue. And so as we are praying for understanding, we should keep in mind the same gift of faith that would justify me, right? Just as I'm dependent on God for the faith that justifies, I am equally dependent on God graciously granting me the faith to believe whatever I'm reading in my Bible reading as well. And if we understand that we are that dependent, that will make us approach God's word only prayerfully. Right? Number five, another way to honor the Lord in our Bible reading that we derive from Proverbs 2 is to diligently search for God's wisdom in God's word. Diligently search for God's wisdom in God's word. Key word there being diligently. As we've already said, each of these things that we're, we're seeing, these principles that we're drawing from Proverbs 2, are an issue of holiness. They're a matter of godliness in each of these. And that includes a willingness to be diligent with God's words. Look at verse 4. If you seek it like silver... And search for it as for hidden treasures. Seek it like silver. Search for it as for hidden treasures. That's how we ought to approach God's word. This diligent search 
which we, we read later is actually, there's nothing more valuable than the wisdom given to us here. And so if, if you would not let your husband sleep, if you found out there were valuable treasures in your backyard, right, there would be a diligent search happening in your backyard. You would be holding the light for your husband as he had that shovel in his hand, right? Uh, we'll stay up all night if we have to, but we're going to be diligent. Um, how much more should we prepare, be prepared with that same attitude when we approach God's word? Not saying, God, if you don't make it easy for me to receive your wisdom this morning, then you must not have anything for me. That's not humble. I'm only going to, I'm going to be willing to receive your wisdom, God, if you make it easy for me. No, we need to be prepared to be diligent. Uh, which is why laziness is, you read Proverbs, and laziness is a great stumbling block to receiving God's wisdom. Just laziness. If we're not prepared to be diligent, if we're slothful or lazy, then that will affect the way we read our Bibles. Because you won't bother to read the same passage twice, you won't do what's necessary so you can mine the treasures that is God's word. And so it's actually a, a, a good principle to, to put off laziness wherever you see it in your life. Right? Knowing that if laziness is in my heart when it comes to my discipline of my children, when it comes to, uh, you know, when I step into the workplace, if that's the case, if I see laziness in those places, that can be traced back even to my heart. And so if I'm lazy there, I have no assurance that it's not impacting the way I read my Bible. And so kill laziness, mortify laziness in your life wherever you see it, because you know that's an attitude of the heart, and I don't want that to impact the way I read God's word. Number six, we see this in, in verses five and nine in Proverbs two. How else do we honor the Lord in our Bible reading is to regularly purify our motives for reading God's word. We must regularly purify our motives when we come to the text. Prioritizing and wanting what God says that his word is intended to accomplish. Um, this probably isn't an issue here, but, you know, this is why the health, wealth, prosperity message is so disappointing. Uh, people walk away from God's word and forsake everything it says because they think it didn't deliver on the promises that I uh, thought it was supposed to deliver. I had a student when I was uh, teaching at Valley who had... Um, uh, an issue with with his feet, just uh, an illness or some some issue that was causing him, that had for a long time caused him great pain, and he was taught that if you have enough faith, you won't be sick, you won't have maladies, and so his sole reason for rejecting the Bible is God didn't heal me. I was really sincere. Well, purifying your motives when you come to the text. Uh, 
will actually fix that issue. Look at why God says he intends, what he intends us to have and receive when we come to his word. Verse 5 says, then, if you approach God's word this way, son, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. That's the primary benefit. That should be our primary motive in reading God's word. Fear him, know him, so that we can be better worshipers of him. We, that's what fear is, to revere him, to know him. And then we see the other result. There's another then in verse 9. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. So not only fear and know God, but obey God is how we can summarize that. You'll actually understand every good path to take, to walk on, so that you actually please the Lord in everything you do. Fear God, know God, and obey God. Dina, did you say I had till 8.30? Or we finish at 8.30? Oh, you need... Great. Uh, I think it's on page two that you have. uh, Those reasons, right? Fear God, know God, obey God. Three, great. All right, so you have it there on, on page three. Uh, those verses that you have under each one just uh, sort of explain those each of those reasons. So there's a list of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. That's that's our purpose is to fear, is to fear God. That's the first, that's the entire book of Proverbs is founded on that principle. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so it is the, the fear of God. It's about the fear of God. Uh, John seventeen three. that's the point of eternal life, is to know God. That is eternal life, to know the one true God and Christ whom you've sent. So even the, the goal of our salvation, when we're given eternal life, is still to know God. And reading God's word is is a part of that. I mean, it's, uh, you think about the connection between, you know, eternal life is knowing God. That is eternal life. That's Jesus' definition of eternal life, to know God and know him. My Bible reading connects to that, that grand purpose. I get to actually not, I don't have to wait till heaven, but I get to do something heavenly and just reading my Bible this morning, knowing God. The, the purpose in salvation and the purpose that we should pursue in Bible reading aren't two different things, is the point. And then reason three, if, if our motivation is to obey God, to actually submit ourselves to his commandments, then we will be eager to receive whatever God's word has for it, whatever it tells us uh, to do. Flip over to 1 Peter 2. This is a, a great passage 
to demonstrate uh, how a lack of holiness impacts, like a lack of obedience might impact how you receive God's word. Peter tells them in verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn babies do something, long for the pure milk of the word, so that, is a purpose, by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you've tasted that the, the kindness of the Lord, or that the Lord is good. That's what we should do. We should long for the pure milk of the word. Now, what would prevent us from longing for God's word as we ought to? Look at verse 1. He tells them to long for it, having put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. There are sins that if you are hanging on to, ways in which you are not obeying God, they will affect your desire for and understanding of God's word. And so if we intend to obey God when we come to his word, if we want to have sin uprooted in our lives, then that will grease the highway, right, of God's word for you. When you come to God's word, it will be a smooth uh, path for you. You'll be positioned perfectly to receive whatever it says to you if you truly do in your heart want to put off sin. And that's really important for a reason that we'll, we'll get to. That integrity like that on the heart level, that's, there's a, something ultimate at stake that we'll talk about. That First Timothy 1, 5-7 reference is uh, about the false teachers, right? You need to have a pure heart. Paul says the, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's what Paul was, was uh, aiming at love that came from those things. And he says that some people, swerving from that, swerving from the three things that uh, he just mentioned, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, by straying from those, they turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers, of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So straying from a pure heart, as goes your heart, so goes your hermeneutic. Uh, you wonder, or you see, you know, another teacher fall, another pastor disqualify himself in ministry. Well, you just just watch the error that he's taught, you know, at some point, not always, but at some point he shows like major lapses in discernment. And, you know, why do you say that or why do you recommend that teacher? Why? I'm surprised he linked arms with that person. What's going on? He seems to be straying in his doctrine. Well, he's only first straight in his heart because there's nothing in Scripture that would encourage or uh, permit error in teaching. 
And so if he's teaching from the scriptures error, it's only because there's error in his heart. Right? And it's the same same way with us. Right. Yep, that's excellent. You know, you, you think if you're holding on to a sin, what do you think you're going to do with the passages that tell you not to? You skip them, you hate them, you twist them. When Whenever I, I read a teacher and he's like defending error using specific passages, I'm thinking, what's happening in your heart that you don't want that to say what it actually says? You know? And we're just as vulnerable. Uh, you know, stubborn sins, and, and we're about to, to talk about that uh, with the issue of anxiety. You know, if I'm committed to something like excusing my anxiety then what do you think I'm going to do with the passages that say I shouldn't be anxious for anything? Now I'm the exception. Those don't, those don't mean, right, what I say they mean. What, what, you know, they don't fit my situation. Now you're reinterpreting passages. Uh, whenever we are committed to a certain sin, which is the, the importance of just uprooting sin, working hard to uproot sin on a heart level, I know we have other things to do in life. Kids are crazy. My husband's got needs, our house is a mess, right? Whatever it is. No, the house can wait. Go shepherd your heart, right? Uh, and we've had those moments in, in my own home where I'm like, babe, the dishes can wait. Uh, you know, I know, you know, we have babies who have needs and they will survive the day. You go go get coffee and, and we'll be here when you get back, Lord willing. <laughs> I'm concerned about the confidence you have here. <laughs> I'll work on that. Go. <laughs> um, yeah, there's nothing more important than that. Uh, and and so you know, right right into the next the next point seven. Trustingly resign yourself to the sufficiency of God's word. That sort of goes hand in hand with the obedience that we just talked about. And we see that in, in 9 to 11. Uh, look at verse 9. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity every good path. So Proverbs 2, 9. This is my Old Testament go-to in counseling for the sufficiency of Scripture. It's, uh, you know, Solomon's making a... A similar statement as Paul is making in 2 Timothy 3.17, that a man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Right? There's nothing excluded that we need to know outside of the scriptures to please God and be godly. Well, here Solomon is telling his son the same thing. Son, you're, it's going to be your job 
to dispense justice one day as the king of Israel? How do you know, how do you obtain the wisdom that you'll need to rule as king, even the king? Well, the same, same, you have the same means everybody else has. God's word, God's wisdom in his word. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Okay, every good path. There are no good paths that you should take that God's word doesn't instruct you in. Is the point. Every good path. And if, if we are not trustingly resigning ourselves to the sufficiency of scripture, if, and it, it's usually an issue of some sin that I am bent on justifying, that's going to affect the way I read, read scripture. And, and I have listed their anxiety as an example. Uh, in, in our day, that just seems to be a, a sin that gets justified, gets blamed on other things, on uh, everything from chemical imbalances to you know, circumstantial things. Either Jesus accounted for all of those things and said, be anxious for nothing, or, or he didn't account for those things, right? Um, and the, the other issues that play into making us anxious uh, are all addressed sufficiently in God's word. We can have the wisdom to navigate, even, even when anxiety is complex, we have the wisdom in God's word to to address that and every other issue. Any questions about that? Okay. Finally, uh, the eighth principle for how we can honor God in our Bible reading is to eagerly read God's word in anticipation of a future day. Uh, before before we move on um, to that, a couple observations I want to just draw out before we move on. In verse 7, who stores up sound wisdom for the upright? Who's a shield to those who walk in integrity? Yeah, God is. The Lord. Yahweh. He, he guards the paths of justice. He's watching over the way of his saints. There's, a, there's protection language happening there. So who's our protector? God is. But look at verse 11. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Verse 12, it will deliver you from the way of evil, from in a perverted speech. Verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, right? If you, what's, what's the protection there from those verses? Discretion. Discretion. Understanding. How do, you, how do you reconcile those two statements? God protects me. God's wisdom protects me. That's right. God protects his people by giving them wisdom so they don't do foolish things. There's protection in that. Absolutely. If you want to be protected, read God's word in these ways. It's, it, there is a seamless connection for Solomon as he's talking to his son in his mind as he is communicating God's wisdom, right? So there is a seamless connection in God's mind 
between reading his word in these ways and even something if verse 16 to 19 like adultery reading god's word you think about how important is my bible reading practically it will preserve your marriage it will preserve your marriage protection against infidelity in marriage is a matter of how you read your bible it is a matter of how you read your bible You want to encourage faithfulness in your husband? Encourage him in his Bible reading. You want to ensure protection for yourself against adultery in your marriage? Read your Bible in this way. That's, what, that's, that's one of the things at stake. Does that make sense? The eighth principle, eagerly read God's word in, t- in anticipation for a future day. We can read with the mindset of, you know, I need, I need God's word today. And that is absolutely true. We absolutely do need God's word in the moment for today. Not because if I don't read it, I'm not going to have a good day, right? Not, not that necessarily. But we need to read it today so that we remain soft-hearted under God's word. We don't grow hard-hearted all for a future day. Look at the reason uh, of the result, rather. If Solomon's son reads God's word in this way, the result, according to verse 20, the final result he gives, is you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. Cool, Dad. Why is that so important? I'll tell you, son. Because the upright will inhabit the land. And those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. What is he talking about there? Flip back to to Genesis uh, 20. uh, Genesis 26. Yeah. Genesis 26 is God's words to Abraham's son Isaac. Um, Another observation. Look at verse 2. Yahweh appeared to him. Just like Yahweh appeared to Solomon, Yahweh appeared to Isaac. He's also appeared to to uh to abraham that only ever means became visible in some way isaac saw god he gives him instructions in verses two and three uh, do not go down to egypt stay in the land of which i shall tell you sojourn in this land And I will be with you and bless you for to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father, Abraham. He's repeating the same promises. He's in Canaan currently and he's reminding him, I'm going to give you this this land that I promised. 
even to your father Abraham. Verse 4, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of, as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed, my, obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. What's being talked about here? The, the land promises of Canaan. Abraham didn't get those. But they were promised not only to Abraham's descendants, but also to Abraham himself, the man. And here they are being promised also to Isaac and his descendants after him. Fast forward to Proverbs 2. The promise still stands. And Solomon's telling his son, there's a certain type of person who will dwell in the land when those promises are finally fulfilled to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of his descendants. Who gets to be in the land? Well, the upright, those with integrity, those who practice responding to God's word in these ways, reading God's word in these ways, that they are an upright person, right? They're, they cling to the way of the good. They keep to the paths of the righteous. What's at stake in your Bible reading? The kingdom. That's to come. These promises, the way this works out, reading your Bible from left to right, the promise, when will Abraham walk on the land of Canaan with Isaac and Jacob and the rest of those who have believed in God? The way this works out biblically is when Jesus reigns on earth. When he fulfills Zechariah 6 that we read about and there's a king, priest in the temple on a throne. The land will be given. Old Testament saints will be resurrected and the promises will be fulfilled to them. And for us today, if we want to see that day, if we want to inherit that kingdom, that land that was promised, if we want to partake in the promises, you got to read your Bible this way. That's God's means of getting us there to inherit the promises. And that's the same point that the writer of Hebrews makes in chapter 3 and 4. I know I'm out of time. We don't have time to, to really spend, spend much here. But, but Hebrews 4.1, even the New Testament churches told the same thing. Therefore, let us fear. There was a generation that didn't get there because of their unbelief and their hard-heartedness. Therefore, let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest. Lest any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Remaining soft-hearted under God's word is important because what's at stake is ultimate promises to partake in the, in the kingdom. And that means land. And so when we talk about how to read our Bible, what hermeneutic, uh, what, hermit, what we practice when, when it comes to hermeneutics, uh, there are temporal things like marriage and personal holiness at stake in how we read our Bible. And there are ultimate promises like the kingdom and heaven one day at stake when we read our Bible. And so that will instill in us a sense of reverence and even urgency uh, if we keep those things in mind and shepherd our heart in these ways.
when we read our Bibles. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word and the wisdom that you have graciously imparted to us through it uh, without any obligation to you. Uh, Just a sign that you are merciful uh, to sinners like us, merciful and gracious to save by sending Christ and merciful to communicate all of your wisdom that will keep us uh, soft-hearted. I pray for uh, Grace Bible Church, for the ladies here, for our families, that you would help us to remain soft-hearted under God's word and that we would spur one another on to love and good deeds, admonish one another as long as it's called today, uh, that none of us have evil, unbelieving hearts that will fall short of these wonderful promises. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.